this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Episode 12, our review of the ICER draft evidence report on resmedarome and abutacolic acid. And from The Vault, we have conversation 16.1 from Season 3, in which Chris Estes, who was then the lead modeler for the CDA Foundation, joined Jorn Schottenberg, Louise Campbell, guest Alina Allen, and me to discuss some of the challenges in building a model for a disease with a long progression path and measurable levels of spontaneous regression. It's an issue that arose during the ICER discussion, but with a very different spin, so you'll probably want to listen to all of this to get a feel for how it hangs together. I opened this conversation by saying that NASH is a bit like the parable of six blind people touching the elephant. You might consider it a completely different thing depending upon where you touch it. I note that we have an extremely diverse group of panelists and invite them each to tell us one thing they find striking about the ICER document from their point of view, although I'm not sure if you and blind people go together. But before we begin this exercise, Jorn Schottenberg and Veronica Miller have other comments. Jorn begins by recapping the number of patients studied in the two trials that are cited here and noting the significant benefits that come from work with such large data sets from reviewing safety and efficacy for his metaroma and beta-colic acid. He also notes that much of the data has not yet been published in peer-reviewed publication. Veronica commends the data sets for their ability to identify relatively small treatment effects here, which both medicines exhibit, but then goes on to describe herself as, and I quote, quite astounded, that this report would be generated before the emergence of formal peer-reviewed publication on the data. I agree with her concern, but note the ongoing tension between acquiring unassailable peer-reviewed data, which will take many years, versus serving the more immediate needs of patients desperate for solutions now. Veronica concurs, noting her past work with HIV. At this point, Jeff McIntyre enters the discussion first by disclosing he was asked by ICER to serve as an expert reviewer and that his name is on the document, and then by going on to say that while he's pleased with ICER's inclusion of patient participation in the report, several critical shortcomings need addressing. His major concern? A statement claiming that NASH and NAFLD are not progressive diseases. This leads me to agree with his concern, and you want to comment that the patients who arrive at his specialty clinic are symptomatic in ways that are related to poor liver health, whether it's actually the liver disease that is symptomatic or not. While ICER is a private organization, its recommendations carry weight with those assessing the value and pricing of new medications. This report will leave a significant footprint in commercial space, so just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. This report came out on February 16th, and it's, I think, a really interesting document in its own right, but the the ripples, I think, will be even more interesting. When people look at this, particularly at the moment we're at right now, where we're waiting for the possibility of drug approvals, they take a look and they go, well, here's what it said about resmedrome, here's what it said about OCA, let me think about what that means, I'm done. But if you read through the actual document, those probably aren't the most important things in the document. That the document tends to be a level set for how we think about lots of different things in the context of evaluating NASH and NAFLD and drugs and disease. And I'd like for us to spend a little bit of time on the drugs. I know that most of the people in the audience uh, today come from either Intercept or Madrigal, but it's more important to me that we look at the rest of it, the assumptions that went into it, the platforms that underlie it, and ask ourselves, are those the insights and perspectives that we think should go forward unchallenged, or where should we be asking questions? Jeff kind of kicked this off for me when he came on last week and started talking about some of his concerns about the report. But when I went back and reread right after our podcast, I said, gee, there's an awful lot that he didn't touch on. So with that, now back to my metaphor of blind people and the elephant, right? Everybody on this call comes at this disease from a different perspective. Okay. We have someone who looks at the economics of diet 
diagnostics. We've got a patient advocate. We've got someone who leads drug clinical trials. We have a research designer who has spent her entire career in lots of different areas of liver disease doing that. And we have Louise, who is a different kind of advocate, a wellness advocate, if you do. If you will, and then I'm kind of a forecaster at heart. So those are six different ways to look at this document. And with that in mind, I think I'd like to start by doing two things. Number one, asking each of the six of us to go to one thing in the document that isn't specifically about the recommendations for esmeterome or butacolic acid, but one thing that you think is important, either as a good assumption or a bad assumption, and why. We're going to let each of us do that, take those apart. Audience, if you want to ask questions, you've all got instructions from me. You see a little purple blink on the bottom. If you want to do that, click it and send through a question, and I will bring it in as appropriate. With that, brave one, go first. Who wants to comment on this document? Jörn Schattenberg. Roger, I understand we're going to take a deep dive into the implications of the document, but let's just very quickly revisit the data because this is very interesting for two reasons. I mean, we're seeing two compounds being detailed in over a thousand patients each, placebo-controlled, so a huge data amount being combined here in that report for both the obidicolic acid as well as the resmeterome treatment arms. Some of the resmeterome isn't even in full publication, but the press release uh, and, of course, the phase two clinical trial design and, and results inform us here. And we're seeing an exploration of the surrogate endpoint that's reasonably likely to predict outcome, liver histology, and changes thereof. Uh, and I don't want to deep dive into response rates, but that's important. I mean, the, we've discussed a lot about efficacy, and this is really, uh, from my perspective as a clinician, scientist, and somebody who, who's involved in clinical trials, being able to combine two large data sets on the efficacy and safety, of course, of those compounds is something that struck me from the report. Veronica Miller. And if I can jump in here, Roger, right after urine, I mean, the data sets are amazing. And, and this is the huge investment that NASH takes in terms of being able to detect in spite of such big data sets, such very small treatment effects, actually. And they're small for both compounds, like neither one of them knocks it out of the park. My concern about the report is that it is based on, on yet, as Jorn said, not published data in any peer-reviewed format. So a lot of it is based on presentations at meetings, press releases, etc., that don't actually go through the formal peer review of publication. And I don't know how ICER normally works, but I have to say personally, I was quite astounded that they would put out a report without waiting for such a formal publication. The second one is, and, and this is maybe where we can kind of go back to the elephant metaphor, you know, we might want to really be careful what we ask for, because if we are lowering fibrosis, which is good, you know, fibrosis also has a very beneficial part in human health. And if you will permit me to use the elephant metaphor in a humorous way, is what would happen if we suddenly treated elephants with antifibrotics and their collagen started to, to disentangle itself. Uh, we might not even have a trunk or, or some of those features we usually see, think about associated with elephants. But it's, it's the long-term safety that I'm kind of going for here. And obviously with Oka, some things were picked up uh, easily, like the puritis, but it takes a long time to really get a handle on the long-term safety of a molecule. And until you've treated thousands and thousands of patients for 10 years or more, you don't even know. And so sometimes we don't find out about these adverse effects until the drug has been used on the market for a long time. And of course, ICER has to come up with a recommendation before that time. But I would say that they should at least wait until there's a formal peer-reviewed publication available. Veronica, one of the things that I've heard for as long as I've been engaged in this space is this tension between the desire to have really good, really unassailable data, thousands and thousands of patients for lots and lots of years, and a concern on the part of the patient population, which is actually cited in this document about the not only physiological, but also psychological 
psychological and emotional effects of not having a drug on the market and not having hope. Actually, it's Jeff and Don who gave this to me in the first place, this understanding in the first place. But where do you weigh in on that teeter-totter? And how do you balance all that, A, in early drug approval or early drug assessment? And then how do you expect that might change as time goes on? You're absolutely right, Jeff, about that. My first drug ex- development experience was in HIV. And I mean, ACT now would be laughed out of the park if anyone tried to develop something with that little level of efficacy, right? And that much toxicity. So we have to start somewhere. That is absolutely true. So that's not the, what I was criticizing about whether these drugs should be approved or not. I was just talking about the process that ICER uses about how to what data they're actually reviewing and how they come up with their conclusions. But I so understand the patient perspective. And you're always being told you don't do the right thing. You don't have the right lifestyle. You know, you're not trying hard enough, et cetera, et cetera. And at some point, people with type 2 diabetes, they get drugs, right? They're treated. So why treat NASH differently and just tell people you're not doing enough, you're not trying hard enough? Jeff McIntyre. Yeah, absolutely. Roger, I do feel like I need to precede my comments with disclaimer or a disclosure, if you will. And that is that my name is on this document and that I was asked to be an expert reviewer for ICER. And so I did submit my comments to them and ICER did take them into consideration, but then they stand behind their own document and their own conclusions on this as well. And so I've had a great correspondence with them and we will be submitting comments for ICER as well. It doesn't, even though they were willing to listen, it doesn't mean that they incorporated. And in fact, they did not incorporate many of our concerns on that, that we raised in the initial draft on that also. So let me proceed that of, in case there's any question of conflict or anything like that. And I do want to compliment ICER for bringing the patient voice in on this early on. Certainly in the past, that has been a big point of contention with the entire ICER process is that patients were kind of an afterthought or they were othered in a way that it was secondary to sort of the clinical trial concerns or to the data or to something like that. And so we're very thrilled and very happy. And so I don't mean to diminish any of our absolute enthusiasm with ICER for being able to be a part of the process. And I can say personally, we had great conversations, had great meetings. They were very receptive and very analytical. And so we're super happy with that part of the process and that. Now, that said, to get to an answer to your question about the teeter-totter is, yeah, it's an issue. I mean, I feel like in hepatology and I feel like in the NAFLD and NASH space, we spend so much time pointing at something else and going, somebody's got to figure that out. And sometimes that is involved in people considering once we have a drug, then all these issues go away. It's like the cartoon where there's the complicated formula and then the two scientists go and then a miracle occurs. And then we have the complicated equation that comes out of that. And nobody can really point to what that miracle occurring is. In this instance, it seems to be, well, if we just get a drug on the market and then suddenly that's going to answer all of our questions about primary care and about awareness and about the connection to diabetes and about all these other things. And I just don't think that's the case with this at all. We do need a drug on the market. We need a therapy to be able to empower ourselves to be able to work on these other issues. You know, um, once we have a drug on the market, then that sets us up to be able to start pushing more significant diagnostic pathways with primary care and primary care providers and beginning to put a little more form on the question of what is the diagnostic standard that we go forward with with primary care for NASH and NAFLD. The only other thought that I'll throw into that as well 
which is you asked for one concern. And so I've been very complimentary and I can't overemphasize how lovely it was to work with ICER in this process. But it's kind of like, wow, I'm so complimented to be able to step into the batter's box or up to the pitch for a free kick, to use a more European analogy, and only to see a swing and a miss on this. There was a lot that got right in the report, but the concern that we have, the several concerns, but the big one I would emphasize is just their statement that Nash and NAFLD is not a progressive disease. I mean, that just seems to be a massive swing and a miss, as you said, that they contradict even within the report itself by saying that it's not a progressive disease, although it may lead to cirrhosis, liver cancer, transplant, some cases death and whatnot as well. And so it's like, did you read the two sentences that go together there that you wrote? Because it seems like they're contradicting each other. And so that's our big contention is that NASH is not a progressive disease. Because frankly, if NAFLD and NASH is not considered to be progressive, then that changes a lot of things. It changes an emphasis of trying to attempt resolution versus just addressing progression. We don't address progression if it's not considered a progressive disease. So how do you stop progression in that instance? I think it also redefines, frankly, risk as well, and consequently redefines how you do the approach to safety if it's not considered progressive also. And so that's a main thing. It's just kind of the clinical assumption on the nature of NAFLD and NASH was something that we have some real issues with. Yes, that's interesting. One of the sentences I highlighted, by the way, which is kind of in the wheelhouse of what you're talking about, was a sentence that reads, we heard conflicting opinion about whether NAFLD was typically symptomatic before the development of advanced liver disease. And my immediate reaction was, well, if that's not progression, what is? I'm going to make a quick comment. I mean, in page six, seven, they have a section on controversies and uncertainties. Reading it, I feel their uncertainty about what's the subgroup of patients that develops the outcomes. And we're debating this in the field. We're discussing the best biomarker. Hannah mentioned her biomarker experience, and I'll be interested to hear what she uh, thinks about that. Uh, that's, of course, the challenge to the field, but it's clearly misleading to state that it's not progressive. I'm I'm with Jeff here. If I read that section on controversies and uncertainties, they say typically asymptomatic, which I would also say most patients do if you ask them, complain of some right upper quadrant, some tiredness. So the patients that reach me, which is a selection, do have symptoms. And that's the point where they struggle a little bit, mixing sometimes potentially general population with at-risk populations with the ones we're seeing in specialty care. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to preview May's second annual Innovations in NAFLD Care Conference with co-hosts Jorn Schottenberg, who's a regular here, as you know, and Jeff Lazarus, who's not. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.